Tune in for a bonus episode of the podcast on the keys to effective leadership in our skeptical culture. Informing, encouraging, and supporting your church. You're listening to the Excellence in Church Administration podcast from ECFA. Welcome, everyone, to the Excellence in Church Administration podcast by ECFA. This is your host, Michael Martin, and today we have a special episode of the podcast for you. Our Vice President of Research and Equipping, Warren Byrd, knows large churches, and he has opportunities frequently to engage with key leaders in the church. Recently, at Saddleback Church, Warren was able to sit down with Ed Stetzer, pastor, author, missiologist, and executive director of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. Let's turn now to Warren's conversation with Ed on trends in church culture and the keys to effective board and staff leadership in these days. Ed, we're recording this at Saddleback Church where you and I are co-teaching a group of pastors, many from extremely influential churches. If you had only two minutes with these or for that matter, any other group of strategic church leaders, what's the most important issue you'd encourage them to focus on for 2019? Yeah, I think we're in the midst of a cultural shift. I think that knowing that we should be preparing ourselves for engaging a culture. I don't, that's not post-Christian. I think it's really hard to say post-Christian when 70 plus percent of people in the U.S., for example, say that they're Christians, but it is post-Christendom. And I think, you know, none of us have been sort of town criers about that for a while. But I do think that the politics of the day have accelerated and amplified the divisions within culture with a particular focus on putting evangelicals in a challenging spotlight. And I think we need to, to quote our mutual friend, Carl George, prepare your church for the future. But it may be a little different. He was talking about some structural issues. I think it has to do with some missional issues is that the world is not the way um, it's not the way it's supposed to be. We know that. And what I would say now is, is it's shifting more quickly than I think many of us expected accelerated by the politics of the moment. So Ed, can you bring that down to a landing? We're no longer have the home court advantage. I think we're all agreeing on that. Yeah. What does it look like for a church best to populate heaven and to make disciples, better disciples yeah. of those that God brings into the church. Well, you know, there's always been this, this positive, and there's still goodwill towards the church and evangelical churches, you know, Wesleyans, Baptists, non-denominational, Pentecostal. So there's still goodwill there. But I think that what's happening is with the rise of a more vocal anti-church mentality that now people are emboldened to say, look, you 81%. And I think that in and 81% who white evangelicals who voted for Trump is what I'm talking about. And I know this isn't intended to be a political podcast. I'm not making a political podcast. I can see why people would make that choice or another choice. So that's not the issue. But I think what's happened is it's emboldened the vocal uh, people who would uh, seek to already be unhappy with the church, but now they feel free to speak that up, speak it up to their friends. And I think what it's causing now is for an increasing number of people to say, okay, I'm not religious or I'm not a practitioner of religion, 
But not only now I'm not that, because your American society is becoming more secular. You know, 1% more Americans per year identify uh, less, identify as Christian, and more identify as uh, nuns or nothing. Um, and one, the PRRI poll had 2%, but PRRI can be an outlier on such things. Um, so if that's the case, I think that what it does is the noise in the culture, which tended to have a somewhat positive or even tolerant view of Christians, is now shifting to where those nominal Christians are becoming more negative towards the church. And thus, I think, now it's not tomorrow, five, ten years from now, I think we're going to see that bring people to church strategies are a harder sell because people assume, no, I'm not really with those that group. And I think that that requires, you know, personal evangelism. That's a phrase that seems to have gone the way of the dodo. You know, it's church evangelism is what we've done. Invite your friend to church. So a skilled communicating pastor can persuade your friend to hear and respond to the gospel. I think that's going to come back. The uh, onus for evangelism in many ways will be returned to where it should be. Individual Christians living on mission. Let's use an old school word since you and I have been teaching some history talking about some historic things. I mean, soul winning, personal soul winning sounds very 1950s. He who wins souls is wise. Um, But what I would say is that I think that if the church is not having a natural magnetic pull to invite people to, it's going to have to be Christians in relationships with people at work because Christians are going to go to work. Christians are going to go to their neighborhood picnics or or community barbecues. Thus, the most effective witness will again be Christians who are living on mission, which would be what it looked like when, you know, when, when the, the, the plague of Cyprian hit Carthage. Uh, Cyprian got the plague named after him, but he was the good guy in the story. But where, you know, the plague hits Carthage and Cyprian, the bishop of Cyprian, brings out the Christians and says, listen, we're going to care for the sick. We're going to care for the dying, regardless of their religion or their ability. We're going to expend our resources to do so. And so I think that that kind of we're the people who are there in the midst of difficulty and hurting is going to be a far more effective witness than our church is really cool. You should come see it. Could be wrong. We'll see. So should pastors, are you saying, put more energy then into helping people, you know, kind of Home Depot, you can do it, we can help. Oh, I like that. You're the you're the front line, yeah. not just our banner, our right. um and, and historically, eighty percent of churches who come to church came at the invitation, right. personal invitation of a friend. And I don't think you're saying that that's ending. No, no, I think I think that's still the majority. So what I'm saying is is that you know fifty percent of Americans are nominally Christian because twenty five percent are non Christian, twenty five percent. Or now I'm not theologically saying everybody in this category is a Christian, but 25% call themselves Christians and sort of shape their lives around it. That's evangelicals, Catholics, mainline Protestants, Mormons, and others. So again, it's not a theological category. It's they identify that way. They shape their lives around it. That's the religious quarter of America. Um, and they call themselves Christians. And But so 50% of Americans call themselves Christians, and yet it's not a life organizing principle like it is for you or for me. We were just talking about, you know, how, you know, you and your wife met at Wheaton College. You went to Christian school by choice. Donna and I, you know, we've known each other. We went to a Christian college by choice. We got married to believers because that's our conviction. So, but so I think 50% still means 
there's a significant openness. I actually divide that into two categories. Uh, the half of them are congregational Christians with, you know, air quotes around it here. Um, you know, Christmas and Easter show up. So there's still some connection and 25% or half of the rest, 25% of the whole are um, culturally Christian, right? They're not something else. They're not Jewish or Hindu. So they call themselves Christian. So, but what we're seeing is, is that the cultural Christians are now increasingly just thinking like secular people. And so less open to a church invitation and more. The congregational Christians are starting to actually poll and think like secular people. And so if that trend continues, I, I think the big story 20 years from now is that nominalism collapsed in America. And not just America. I think the English-speaking Western world. And define what you mean okay, by Okay, so that. nominalism, name only. Uh, it was actually funny. I wrote an article in USA Today explaining this. And they said I couldn't use the word nominal because it would be too high of a reading level for USA Today um, readers. So that would deeply, I, I was sad for America for just a moment. But nominal is from Latin name only, right? So, and again, I have to be careful because I'm not saying that everyone, if someone doesn't go to church, they're not a Christian or whatever. But I'm, I'm saying that half of America is Christian and it's not a life-shaping, life-altering identification. And those people now, so if I'm, if I'm pastoring a church, now this isn't true in Vermont and it's probably you know, not true in, in, uh, in Austin for that matter. But if I'm in Chicago, it's still true. I tell people, bring your friends to church on Christmas and Easter. So that fishing pond has become what we are best at. But that fishing pond, I can tell you with as much statistical certainty as statistics can give us, that that fishing pond's drying up. And to change metaphors, we're going to be like a bear fed by the tourist. Because the bear didn't have to go out and do it the bear's self. And so the tourists would feed. And in a sense... What's happened with evangelism is Christians have become like a bear fed by the tourists. It works. Bring your friends to church. Listen, we saw a peak in church attendance in the 80s, I think in large part because of the reinvention of church. And people said, I don't want to bring my friends to this new thing. It's not your mama's church. But that trend, that pond, back to the other metaphor, sorry to mix them, that pond's drying up, that tourists are not coming to bring the food to the bear. And the bear better learn to fend for him or herself. And I think that means that Christians have got to learn again what's a very old and very biblical skill that they themselves engage in relational evangelism and personal gospel proclamation. You develop a lot of this that you've just voiced in your latest book, Christians in the Age of Outrage. And uh, you you use politics as kind of the stimulus, but you give a lot of insight about these four different groups sure. into which most Ameri any American can fall and how to respond. Is there, if you had to put your finger on one thing that church leaders can do to help their people win the hearing for the gospel, yeah. what would it be? Um, I would say to... Well, and again, I, I'm quoting my book, so forgive me. But it is, I mean, that's when you, we've written the books together. When you write it, it's really what you think. So I would say be winsome ambassadors for the gospel. So, you know, I love the life and legacy of Mr. Billy Graham. Mr. Graham, if anything, was winsome. I mean, he made his mistakes and he, he owned up to them. But I think ultimately what we need, I mean, a lot of Christians right now are sort of gearing up for war against their enemies. You can't war at a people and reach a people at the same time. And so we have to sort of make a decision. Do we want to be the guards of the culture? Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. 
or on mission as missionaries to the culture, recognizing this is what you think, but there's a better and a different way. So I think ultimately that missional posture of winsome ambassadors. And, you know, of course, you know, Paul calls himself an ambassador in 2 Corinthians 5, but he's actually referring to himself and the band of missionaries that he's with. But Christians for 2,000 years have applied that to themselves. I think rightly so. We are ambassadors for Christ, Paul writes, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I think when all people are that way, you know, Spurgeon put it this way, uh, for those who are not listeners who appreciate history, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, put it this way. He said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Now, I actually would phrase it differently because I don't like to use the term missionary for everybody because it devalues that cross-cultural missionary that's going to the Pocot in Africa. And I think we need to have more, not less, celebrate, not dilute. So I would say every Christian is either on mission or an imposter. So I think the answer, simply to your question, is to get back to John 20, 21, where Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. Aute in the Greek is in the same manner, not for the same purpose, but Jesus, who in the Gospel of John says 40 times that he sent, you know, God sent, Father sent me, I've been sent by the Father, and at the end says, oh, by the way, he didn't really put the by the way part, but kind of feels that way, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. We need a church on mission, and the way I describe it in Christians in the Age of Outrage is winsome ambassadors. And I think ultimately, if that could be who Christians are, I think nominalism can collapse. Because I think nominalism is going to go its way. The nominals are becoming the nuns. So as that happens, we're not, our, our, the future of our evangelistic endeavor is not driven by the fact that there are people who think they're Christians we're going to persuade them they're not Christians so they can actually be born again and become Christians. But instead, it will be upon people who have already decided they're not, and it's clearer what is a Christian. There's a lot of verbs in that sentence, so forgive me. Great insight. Thanks for referencing, uh, pulling from your book, Christians in the Age of Outrage, which I've enjoyed reading Thank sections of already. Now, let me change gears. Yeah. For ECFA... Yep. 2019 you know, is the I, I year. You know, I can never say that. I'm always like EFCA, ECFA. I always get, and like I'm speaking at the Evangelical Free Church in America, and I know I'm going to get up and say ECFA. Can't you guys well, like coordinate your acronyms? Well, it turns out that EFCA is a member of the ECFA. ECFA. Do you ever get it backwards like I do? Now that no. I work with them, <laughs> I never get it backwards. All right, good, sir. All right. For us yeah. at the Evangelical Council for Financial, CFA. Account Financial Accountability, 2019 is the year of excellence in governance. Cool. On a scale of 1 being low to 10 being high, how would you rate the typical large church board in its effectiveness in governance and why? Oh, my gosh. Well, we hear a train in the background. They probably can't hear the train that you and I hear. But considering all the train wrecks we've had in the last couple of years, um, you know, typical large church. I, I, I don't see, they got to hear that train by now. I don't see that it's been so great. Number, I don't know, four? Because I think what we're finding is that governance, well, you know, if you, if you have a board, let, can I, I just use the term elders if that's okay, because theologically I see boards as elders. Now, not everyone will, and I get that, but vestry, session, deacons, you know, administrative team, whatever you call it. 
if your elders never say no to you, you don't have elders, you have cheerleaders. And it appears that a substantial percentage of churches don't have elders who can step in literally in the midst of a train wreck and say, let's throw the switch and redirect the train. So, and what I would say, and this is why, you know, we're, we're, I think I mentioned to you, we're, we're in the process of talking about how the Billy Graham Center can help create a kind of a resource for uh, better governance. Because, but the problem is, I mean, really, as a pastor, you're making a determination to have brakes on the car. And because if you don't have strong governance, every idea you have gets done. So it's sort of counterintuitive. And all the horror stories of, I couldn't get anything done because the elders were in charge. Or you know, in, in traditional church, the deacons are like the elders in Baptist world. right? So I hear a lot, well, the deacons just did this or that. Well, I got to tell you, um, I'm not sure which is worse, um, bad elder governance or no elder, elder governance. I would like to have option three, please, which is good governance. So that's, and again, this is why I think ECFA, and again, I'm not paid to say this. I don't even think, I, I don't even think like I've ever done anything with the, I mean, we are a member, um, but I mean, I, I think that the ministry of the ECFA is right now, 2019 is the year, okay, it right now is a key moment because the witness of Christians is at stake. And I think ECFA is part of the solution and uh, and again, I'm I'm not a what is it the guy I like it so much about the company or I'm I'm a Norelco, Norelco, yes. you know whatever it is. So so we're in, but I think ultimately you need a lot more people to be in. And of course, you know, I mean, people can still no governance fixes the dishonest person. It just enables you to respond and not see the train wreck. Again, thank God I'm a metaphor user. Thank God that sometimes we can slow down and redirect the train. It doesn't always have to crash. And I think governance helps us to avoid those crashes. Will the increasing skepticism in the American culture towards organized religion in particular, what will the impact be on church boards and their needs and the standards that those boards decide upon for what they can and cannot do? Well, the imprimatur of... Um, of some organization that's not yours. And, and I would say too, yours is not, I mean, you have to have two things. You have to have, here's our audited financial statements, which you don't audit financial statements, though you do require those kinds of things. And we have a lot of CPAs who look over those exactly, audits. Exactly, exactly. So, so I think it's a twofold thing. One says the, you know, this is the imprimatur saying that we are um, approved. We are certified. We are whatevered. Um, and that adds a sense of credibility. And I will tell you as donors, you know, I raise funds for the Billy Graham Center. They ask those questions. And so, um, and they should, I mean, who, who should give is someone who's being a good steward and that's on me. So, and you know, right now you're the ECFA is the, is, is the space. I mean, there's not like others out there, not that I'm calling for creating others. Maybe, maybe there will be one day and that's fine. But, but I would say, uh, audits, and imprimatur both make uh, for accountability that I think a lot of Christian organizations will be asked more about. Thank you.
You've given us a little bit of a forecast of stuff you're working on. Can you give us a bigger picture of what issues you're pondering the most? And somewhere in there, tell us how listeners can stay connected with you. Uh, you know, one of the weird things in my life is I have, and I love it. First, I have a raging case of attention deficit disorder. Having written books with me, you know this to be the case. Uh, but that makes me interested in a lot of things. So people sometimes say, what are you most interested in? And basically, it's what I've looked at earlier that day. So what I'm interested in right now is you and I are teaching a graduate level class. And I'm super excited to be the dean of the School of Mission, Ministry, and Leadership. And our program's exploding. And people are taking master's degree courses all over. Love that. But my next book probably would fit your answer the best. I'm writing uh, a book on evangelicalism and its future. And I say primarily it's evangelicalism as a future. You can't deal with current evangelicalism without looking at its historic streams. So I do that as well. But um, I think we're at a, a proverbial fork in the road. And as Yogi Berra said, you come to a fork in the road, take it. And I think a lot of people sense that. And I think that's, you know, it's one of the things that our mutual friend Elmer Towns once said to me. And he probably said to you, write the first book. Just write the first book about something. Well, it's certainly not the first book about evangelicalism. But... The book on outrage was everyone, and you know, it's funny, you know how the lag time is. Two years ago, you say, okay, I'm going to write a book on outrage. You know, the book came out, I don't know when their podcast airs, but the book came out uh, in October, so just a few months ago. And, but you had to start writing it two years, October before. And then you write for a year, you're probably faster, but you write nine months. So you, I'm wondering, October or maybe November or December 2016, everyone's mad. You know, President Trump just got elected and division. But I'm sort of wondering, when is this all going to die down? Are people still going to be outraged? And I got to tell you, turns out they got more outraged. Well, I think that as I'm starting to write on evangelicalism, I think, and I'm not a prophet, the son of a prophet, and I work at a nonprofit organization, but I think that two years from now, that crisis is going to be even more laid bare. And so I hope, I'm not... I'm not the guy who gets to be the standard bearer of what evangelicalism is or should be. I think that's probably going to be a Latina woman, uh, not, a, not a white man. But um, for me, I, I want to speak into that because I'm at the Billy Graham Center, because I'm the regional director for North America for Lausanne. And we have a responsibility to say, what is our evangelicalism going to be? So in the spirit of Mr. Graham who some say, I mean, they're actually serious scholars who say, Billy Graham created, not, I mean, not just like was a key leader in, but created what is the modern evangelical movement. And you can make that case, I mean, historically. So what should I do? I'm hoping to be a voice and maybe a chorus of voices that say, we need at this fork in the road to make the right choices. So it'll be a vibrant, biblical, missional, faithful movement uh, for centuries to come, should the Lord tarry. Um, and so that's ultimately what I'm writing. And people can always follow my work at, uh, if they go to edstetzer.com, that's sort of a launch page. It can go to the radio show, the Christian Today articles, whatever. Um, and, you know, the social medias, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, so so for, for us, you know, pray for us at the Billy Graham Center at Lausanne, North America, that we can help uh, do what the writer of Hebrews says, provoke one another to love and good deeds provoke evangelicals to love and good deeds at this key moment, I think, in, uh, in history. So, Ed, we join you in that heartfelt prayer and desire to see what God's going to do in 2019 
We appreciate all the good tools you put in our hands. And together, let's see what God will do through our lives and churches. Amen. Wow, I don't know about you, but those are some great insights from Warren and Ed Stetzer on effectively reaching our culture in these days. So much for us uh, as church leaders to be thinking about. Well, hey, if you like this podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, please do so now on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Well, again, this is Michael Martin with ECFA, and we look forward to being with you again soon on the Excellence in Church Administration podcast.